in 1 Kings 22, this is taking place about 50 years after the death of Solomon. Remember Solomon, he was the wisest, the wealthiest, the, the everythingest king that probably has ever been, for sure, in, in Israel's history. Um, this is about 90 years after the death of King David. And so it doesn't, as you read and you put that in context, wow, it doesn't take long for things to go from really good to you know, below average at best. Ramoth Gilead is a town, it's like the easternmost border of Israel. It's 30 miles east of the Jordan River. So right now in history, they can test the West Bank, this little strip of land on the western side, that, well, Israel shouldn't have that, but at, at one point, Israel extended clear on the other side of the Jordan. And so this would be way on the border with Syria. At the time, they were called the Arameans. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah. Samaria is the capital of Israel. It's about a 40 or 50 mile journey. And a good chunk of that is not exactly an easy walk or an easy ride. Ahab is the king in Israel. And he has the dubious distinction. How's that for alliteration? Of being the most wicked ruler in the history of the Jews. Jehoshaphat is the king in Judah. His father was Asa. And his father had to undo what his father and grandfather and even great-grandfather Solomon did at the end of his life in allowing the idol worship and the altars to be erected in and around the country. Asa began to restore the land, began to tear down the altars. Jehoshaphat continued in that. And in 1 Kings 22, as Jehoshaphat is looking around and instituting his reforms and trying to figure out how do we move our people back to God, he realizes that the town of Ramath-Gilead, 30 miles east of the Jordan, on the border country, three, maybe five years earlier, the Syrians had captured it and they were holding it. And he says, we need to bring them back. We need to bring relief to our people. That is our town. That's our people. And so he travels to Samaria to see Ahab. And Ahab welcomes him. And remember, it's not really open civil war between Israel and Judah, but it's, it's uneasy. They don't trust each other. They don't hang out together. It's just, it's just not good. But Jehoshaphat goes there and he says to Ahab, this is what I've got in mind. Ramoth Gilead, they're our brothers, our cousins, our fellow Jews, our fellow countrymen. We need to go and liberate that town. We need to take them back from the Syrians. Ahab has had some pretty good success against the Syrians. Ahab is a weak-willed individual, but he's a fairly good leader. His father was a powerful military man, and some of that had rubbed off on Ahab. And, and in spite of all the wickedness, Israel was prospering. They were still wealthy. There was still money pouring into the country. There was still a lot of money to be spent. 
And so Jehoshaphat goes to Ahab and says, between your army and my army, we can go and we can save our fellow countrymen. And Ahab, he listens to this, and he looks at him, and I can just see him rubbing his chin, and says, you know what, that's a good idea, let's make it happen. And he jumps up, and away he goes. And Jehoshaphat says, whoa, 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 stop, wait, I, uh, okay, so we're on the same page. I think it's a good idea. You obviously think it's a good idea. Um, let's see if God thinks this is a good idea. Before we go, let's, let's include him in our plans. And Ahab, this had nothing to do with Yahweh, with the Creator God. All his time and energy has been focused on Baal. He says, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, I, yeah of course, I was getting around to that. He says, I'm going to bring in my prophets of God. And he brings in 400 prophets. Now, if you remember earlier in 1 Kings, when Elijah issued the challenge to meet at Mount Carmel, and there was 400 prophets of Baal, I don't know if 400 was just kind of a number that Ahab liked, and if I got 400 or whatever, then I'm in good shape. But his prophets of Baal had all been killed, so none of those are included in this group. These are just, you know, big word apostate prophets. They were Jews, and they would be claiming to be God's voice, but really they were more interested in just saying whatever Ahab wanted to hear. And one or more of them would get a read on Ahab's mood. They'd all get together. This is what Ahab wants, so this is what we're going to tell him God wants for him. And that'll keep him happy. It'll keep us, well, it'll keep us in food and our heads. So he brings in these 400 prophets. And to a man... They all come before the two kings, Jehoshaphat and Ahab, and they say, you know what? God wants you to go into battle. God wants you to be there. He's going to grant you victory. And right down the line until you get Zedekiah. I just saw a little note. I don't know who put it here. Thank you. God bless you, it says. A little distraction. In any case, where was I? Oh, yeah, Zedekiah shows up. Just a little distraction. Zedekiah shows up, and he's formed these iron horns, and he's like putting them on his head and say, Ahab, this is the way it's going to be, dude. You're going to go in there and you're going to be like the bull in the china shop. And you're going to be this way and that. And you're going to be goring the Arameans. And you're going to completely wipe them out. You're going to take the town back and everybody's going to think you're the greatest. And Jehoshaphat, or Jehoshaphat, Ahab jumps up and says, all right, there we have it. Let's go. And Jehoshaphat is a man of God. And he's made a mistake in hanging out with Ahab at this point. But he's close enough to God to know that this doesn't smell right. And he says to Ahab, isn't there anybody who speaks for God? And Ahab says, well, yeah, but there's one guy, but I hate that guy. He never has anything good to say about me. And Jehoshaphat, I can just see him thinking, I spent how much time to get here for this? He says, well, you know, you're the king. You really, that's beneath you. Yeah, yeah, I know, but I hate that guy. He says, well, why don't we hear what he has to say? So Ahab says, go get Micaiah. And so this guy, Micaiah, prophet, and he, that would have been a lonely spot in Israel. 
And Micaiah comes in. And as he's walking into their presence, Zedekiah, the guy with the horns, he, he grabs him, pulls him aside. Listen, we're all on the same page here, Mac. This is what we told the king. So get in line and step right. And Micaiah says, I can only say what God has told me to say. And he goes before Ahab. And this, you know, there's enough in this story to like, but I love this guy. Because he steps up there. And he's got the spiritual gift of sarcasm. And he says, you know what, Ahab? All these guys are right. You're going to go in there and you're going to wipe them out and everything's going to come up peaches or roses or whatever they come up in Israel. And Ahab looks at him. And now whether the sarcasm was in the tone, whether the sarcasm was in his body language, whether it was just in the, the facial expression that he had while speaking to the king, maybe it was all three. Ahab understood, and he could see the sarcasm dripping all over the floor. And so he throws some right back at him. He says, Micaiah, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth? Ahab wasn't interested in the truth. If he had been, he wouldn't hate this guy. And so Micaiah comes back and he says to Ahab, says, all right, this is what I know. This is what I've seen from God. I see a people who are lost and scattered on the hills without a leader. And Ahab stops him and leans over to Jehoshaphat and says, see, I told you, this guy's never got anything good to say. And Micaiah comes back and he says, you know, I saw a vision. This is what God showed me. It was a heavenly court. And God was holding court. And within the history of Israel, you see this in the book of Genesis time and time and time again and throughout. And it's not like in Revelation where you see the court and everybody's there to worship. It's kind of like God is, is holding a session. And even Satan or some of the demons have been allowed access to that. And God is, you see it in the book of Job. <clears throat> we see it again here. And God says, I'm looking for someone who will come and deceive Ahab and lead him to his judgment. If you read chapters 20 and 21, you see Ahab had had opportunity to repent and he rejected. And the judgment was, you are going to die an undignified and ignoble death, both you and your wife. And the time had come for God's judgment on Ahab. And he says, I'm looking for someone to deceive Ahab so that he will go into battle and be killed. Who will do that for me? And a lying spirit came and said, I will do it. And God says, how will you do it? He says, I will deceive him through his prophets. And at that point, Zedekiah, the guy with the horns, walks up to Micaiah and wham! Slaps him across the face. A grave, a heavy insult. He says, where did that spirit come from? And Micaiah looks at him and says, you'll know one day when you're by yourself in your room. And Ahab stands up, says, throw him in the dungeon, give him half rations of bread and water until I return safely. 
To which Micaiah, as he's being led away in chains, he says, if you come back, then I'm not a man of God and he has not spoken. If you want to know how the rest of it ends, you're going to have to read it this afternoon. There's a lot to walk away from. And if it's just a story with a sarcastic prophet, it's not enough. So what do we do with it? How do we apply it? I've got four things here, and maybe one works. One is what you need to work on. Maybe there's more than one. But in any case, the first thing, are we interested in truth? Or are we obsessed with personal preference? Ahab was obsessed with personal preference. What's going to make me look good? What's going to make me feel good? What's going to... What do I want to hear? And when men came to him and spoke the truth, well, he put them on the hit list. Elijah's been on the run for quite some time. Why Micaiah hadn't been killed? Because, you know, if the king hates you, that's, that's an unenviable position to be in. But what do we want from church? Why do we come? I've heard different ones, and I've grown up in church, and I've heard people say, well, I come because it makes me feel good. Okay. I come because it makes me feel clean inside. All right. Just this week, I heard somebody telling me... Church attendance and, and doing good things, it's a, it's a bargaining chip. It's a, it's a point of leverage with God. I've been in church. I'm doing the right thing so I can leverage that against God for my soul or whatever it is. They're going to be sorely disappointed. In Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, we see that when we come together, when we gather, we gather to worship, we gather to pray, we gather to stir each other up, to spur each other on to love and good deeds. It's about a pursuit of truth. So are we interested in truth or are we obsessed with personal preference? The next two kind of flow into each other. They're different enough, the same enough, and I, I, don't, I, I didn't know how to combine or separate, so you can figure that out somewhere in between, and I'll do it better next time. But beware of disconnect. You've got the truth, and then you've got life, and then somehow we try to live with this disconnect between truth and, and life. And I've talked, I, we all do it. You know, another word for it would be hypocrisy. And, you know, nobody's called out for hypocrisy more than those who go to church. And, yeah, you're probably right, but everybody's a hypocrite. We all have this disconnect between what we say we believe, between what we know we believe, and then how we live our life. And that's because we are not perfect individuals. And the hardest thing 
is to live that consistent life where we learn to consistently obey the word of God, where we learn to consistently do what we say we believe. Even if it's to our own detriment. Ahab hated the one guy that would speak truth into his life. Ahab hated the one guy whose advice that would have prolonged his life. Where did the disconnect come from? Ahab was more interested in hearing about his best life now than the truth of God's word. In 2 Timothy 4, and this is going to carry right over into my next point of application. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5, Paul is at the end of his life and he's begging, imploring Timothy. He says, this is what's, this is the nitty gritty. These are the nuts and bolts. The rest of the stuff, this, remember this, cling to this, live by this, pass this on. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the myths. Ahab surrounded himself with 400 guys that would tell him what he wanted to hear and lead him off. And so in connection with that, we also need to be aware of false teachers. And there are some, they don't even claim to be from God, you know, or they don't even claim, you know, hey, this is just what I know, this is, you know, or whatever God, you know, whatever religion, whatever philosophy, whatever, you know, they'll come and, and it's pretty easy to pick them out most of the time. What gets more difficult is, is the number of folks you hear on the radio, you see on TV, and, most, and, and false teachers is nothing new. You know, go back, it's in the Old Testament, Israel was forever being led astray by somebody with an agenda outside of God's. In the New Testament, you know, the church is hardly established. And just a few years later, Paul and Peter and all these like, watch out, be careful. Cling to the things we taught you. Cling to the gospel because the rest of this stuff... And you could spend years studying different false, wrong teaching, wrong theology, false teaching. But there's just two, I think, that we need to be particularly aware of. Because it encroaches in the church. One is the prosperity gospel. When I was a kid, it was, you know, like health and wealth is what it would be called and I don't know if it's a better word or just a different way to describe it, but it's the whole idea that you come to Christ and you get your best life now. When you come to Christ, your life will get better and easier. And everything will simplify. And if you have enough faith, then you'll have enough money to do what you want and live how you want. The problem with that is Nowhere in Scripture do you find it. In Romans 8, Paul knows a little bit about suffering. In 
In fact, when he was converted on the road to Damascus, he's blinded and he's led to a home in town there and Ananias is told by God, you need to go see Saul. And Ananias isn't that interested. (laughs) He was probably one or two on the list of guys to be arrested by Saul. And what's Paul telling, or what does God tell him about Saul? I must show him how much he will suffer for my name. That was Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion. You're going to suffer greatly. And Paul says in Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So if Paul was suffering, and he suffered immensely, it wasn't for a lack of faith or poor choices or wrong living. It's because that's the way it is for the follower of Christ. In 1 Peter 4.12, Peter's another guy that knows a little bit about suffering. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So when you hear somebody saying or teaching or preaching or promoting the fact that you come to Christ and everything gets easier, better, simpler, It does simplify things. It doesn't make things easier. In the short run, it might not make things better. But it's not about now. It's about what comes later. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the hope that the resurrection provides. It's the hope that we have to endure and to live well. Suffering is part and parcel of a faithful life lived for Christ. Sarcastic or not, Micaiah was going to suffer for his message. And he did. The second one is, they call it word of faith now. And the kind of the big idea is that the words I use determine the destiny of my life and you take about that much truth and then you add a bunch of stuff to it and you end up with this I think Norman Vincent Peale probably got the whole thing started back in the 50s with uh, was it power of positive thinking and uh, I'd heard the guy's name and I remember visiting my aunt, and she had that book somewhere, and I got to reading it. It's like, holy cow, this guy sold how many books? You know, you memorize scripture, and you say it over and over and over again, and then God will somehow bless you because you're saying it over and over, and because it becomes who you are, and you change your life, and you change your destiny just by... And that's all morphed and evolved and been twisted into this whole word of faith, and it puts all the pressure on me. Because if I have a negative thought or if I say something negative, then I've just thwarted God's plan for my life. 
and all the good things that I've done to get to this point, now I've set God back and now we've got to start over, redirect. And what makes that theology, that philosophy so dangerous is it removes sovereignty from God. God is sovereign. And we see even in 1 Kings 22 that he can take and use anything to accomplish his purposes. We see it in the book of Job. We see it in the book of Genesis, chapter 45. If you remember the story of Joseph, he's sold by his brothers. He's sold to Potiphar. Potiphar's wife lies about him and his actions. He goes to prison. He rots in prison for who knows how long. Well, he doesn't rot. He just has to sit there. He was being refined and perfected. Finally, he gets out and he rises to the level of the second most powerful man in all the world. If you wanted to eat, you came, see, you came to see Joseph. And here come his brothers who are starving. And they don't recognize this guy. And why would they? They assume he's long dead. They've been living a lie for 20 plus years. They've been repeating the lie to their father for 20 plus years. And Joseph reveals himself. And suddenly, everything that had been going on in their interactions with him began to fall into place and make sense. And like, oh no. Now it's our turn. And what does Joseph say in verse of verse chapter 45 now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life it wasn't about you guys it was what God was doing and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors so it was not you who sent me here but God and after Jacob dies yeah, after Jacob dies. Got to run through the list. And the brothers are all nervous. Okay, now that Pop's gone, what's Dad going to do? And again, he says, no. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. We serve a sovereign God. Romans 8, 28, and 29. And these are hard verses to, to try to read and comprehend when life's a disaster, when life is hard. But we serve a sovereign God who's not dependent on us to accomplish his purposes. He will accomplish it. And he will use even the most bizarre or hard circumstances to accomplish his purposes. And finally, be careful who you run with. It should go without saying, but if you're spending all your time if all your closest friends, if all your dinner parties, if all the folks that you, you rub shoulders with more than anyone else, if they are not followers of Christ, if they are not on the same page with you, you will be influenced. And vice versa, the opposite is true. If your closest friends and acquaintances are those who are on a pursuit of who God is, if they're pursuing truth, 
it will influence you to do the same. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul is telling the Corinthians, you guys are so mixed up. You've believed all this stuff. You've allowed all these folks to come in. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. You cannot run with these folks. You cannot run with those who are not going to speak truth. You cannot hang with those that are not right with God and not be adversely influenced. So, as you go home today, maybe tomorrow, as you pick up your Bible, look at 1 Kings. Read 20, 21, and 22. And ask God, what is it? Where is it in my life? I need to change. When needs to become more like you. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy.org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.